0: Anyway, back to the podcast. I, I, think, I think the best way to start off is with Jesus, a big, a big view of Jesus, our King. And um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these notes, sort of. I'm going to like, you know, just kind of skim on the surface of them. So, uh, you, you just have them, though. You can, you can read the rest of it on your own. And if there's something I want you to look at, you know, I'll tell you the page number. And so, you can, you can look at it. Um, but, I mean, the first question I ask is, is this, is this necessary? Uh, again, this is the way that most seminaries will, will start off. And uh, I would say, no, it's actually not necessary to learn all of the, the views, um, it can be it can be harmful. It can be off-putting, uh, but this is why it's helpful. Um, I think it is helpful. Now I'm looking at the bottom of page one here. Um, letter G at the bottom of page one says tonight's teaching is a next step teaching for those who want to grow. Uh, and so, and then I'm going to list these are the reasons why I think this is helpful to know what we're going to learn tonight. Uh, who want to grow in their critical thinking faculties? Okay, so as we we look at what the church has believed in, uh, different views they've had for the last two thousand years, <clears throat> you're going to exercise your critical thinking. You know, oh, okay, this makes sense. Um, oh, maybe this doesn't make sense. You know, maybe this is a, a this is not founded by scripture. Second, um, your knowledge of the ho- historical church and its views. Uh, which is which is good you know it's good to know just uh, we have a long 2,000 year history I think that's really just enriching to uh, to just grow in in doctrine um, and then finally this is probably the most important one is that we grow in understanding and respect for other people with different views okay so I, I am gonna uh, poke at some particular views. <laughs> Uh, some more so than others, so I'll, I'll just say it. I will I will poke at the left-behind view uh, harder than most other views. Um, I don't believe that it's biblical, and, and I'll explain that more why. I have a whole 10-page uh, document on why I don't think it's biblical. You, you know, you can, I'll put those in the back later, and so you can go through it kind of argument by argument. Uh, so I'll, I'll poke at that one pretty hard. There are some other views that I I don't think are ideal either, and I'm going to poke at those as well, but probably just a little more lightly. But really, my bigger point is that even though I will do that, even though I do have an opinion from what the Scriptures say on how this whole thing is going to go down, uh, we want to respect the other leaders and and Christians in the church that have different views on this matter this this is not an issue that determines saving faith in Jesus. you know like if you have a different end times view then it <clears throat> doesn't mean you're in or outside the church we can we can do ministry together, get along, love one another and 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 still disagree so let's let's get into it, turn to the you know I'm gonna I'm gonna I have some definitions and I'm actually gonna skip those because I think in the second session we're just gonna arrive at those we're just gonna get to the definitions. So I'm gonna go straight to to page three and talk about different views. I'll save I'll save my view for for last. It'll be a, a it'll be suspense mystery. Uh, so I call this the the Ru- the Rubik's cube of end time views. Has anybody ever done a Rubik's cube? Yeah, I I try and I quit really quick. Um, I don't know how to do them, but they are uh, <clears throat> you know you try to get all the the blues on one side, the red on one side, but you have to you have to to line them up. And I think it's uh, I'm stealing this analogy from somewhere, but somebody likened all of the end time views to a Rubik's cube because. Uh, you, as we'll see, there aren't just four views, okay? That would be just one side of the Rubik's Cube, all right? Uh, there are four views, and then on a different subject of the end times, there are also four views, and then on another subject, of the, there are also four views. And so, you know, a- after you look at it, you really have to choose what you think about this first issue And then the second issue, you know, you have all these different sides of the Rubik's Cube, and it can be just incredibly confusing and intimidating. Uh, So the first one, uh, the first issue that I want to look at, uh, this would be four different ways to to view the book of Revelation or just end-time prophecy in general, and I'm at the bottom of page three. And what I'm going to do, you know, you can get this in most... Uh, Revelation commentaries, or even a good study Bible. You know, at the beginning of Revelation, they will have these four views mapped out, just an introduction, and so you guys can, you know, refer to that if you have a Bible like that. If not, Tim has several in his basement, and so <laughs> you can borrow one from his. Um, so so what? I, the only thing different I'm going to do is that I'm going to give you my my personal commentary on the strengths and weaknesses of that view, <laughs> Okay, so the, the first is what we call the the preterist view, okay? The preterist view is that <clears throat> the prophecies of Revelation or whatever end-time passage, you know, Matthew 24, da-da-da, they were primarily fulfilled in the first century, okay? Uh, in the first century, the the Jewish temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD. And and Jesus did clearly prophesy that in in the New Testament. Uh, Actually, right before his famous chapter on the end times in Matthew 23, and then leading up to the beginning of Matthew 24, he said that, that, uh, uh, you know, it says his disciples came to him and were... They were pointing his attention to the temple. They were they were wanting him to be as impressed with it as they were. And he turned to them and said, Not not one stone will be left upon another. And that shocked them. Uh, and Jesus was was clearly and directly saying that this temple that you know was revamped by the Herod of the time is going to be destroyed at some point. <clears throat> and that led them to ask this question in their minds. That was the end of the age, because they couldn't imagine that the temple would be destroyed. And so they actually asked two questions at once, and they said, when will this happen? Question number one. And what are the signs of the end of the age? They didn't realize that those would be two separate things. They didn't realize that the temple would be destroyed in just a few decades, 70 AD, but then the end of the age wouldn't come till... Centuries, centuries later, we are still waiting for, you know, the, the end of the end of the age. <clears throat> so, but this view, the preterist view, don't ask me why it's called preterist, just to be confusing, um, is that <clears throat> Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, it's all about what happened in 70 AD. Okay? So all of the, the seals, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, um, <clears throat> It's all referring to all of the destruction and just the, the suffering and the atrocities that happened. And, and, and there were. You know, 70 AD was, a, was traumatic for the Jewish people. Um, the city was surrounded. They were sieged. Um, you know, mothers were, were eating their own children as they were starving inside of the city walls. Uh, I mean, it was just unimaginable suffering. Uh, so this view would say, you know, they're all fulfilled. Now, this is not in the notes, but they're actually, uh, there's a partial preterist and a, and a full preterist view. The the par- I'm talking about the partial preterist, Strengthen- and, and that means that most of these prophecies were fulfilled, but of course, you know, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, then you'll see the, su- the sign of the Son of Man in the sky, and uh, the sun will go dark, the stars will fall, and uh the angels will go forth and gather all of the elect. I mean, that's that takes some pretty big stretching to say that that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Right? So, so full preterists actually believe that those scriptures were also. They they believe that Jesus came spiritually in 70 A.D. And so, uh, I I don't even list that here because I, we would say that that's outside of Orthodox Christianity. That's that's too far. You know, that's that's heresy, really. To say that the, the, coming, the second coming of Jesus was fulfilled in the first century, that means that there is no blessed hope, you know, that, that there is no second coming to wait for. It's already happened. So, so, so full preterist is that's bad. That's, that's heresy. Um, but partial preterist is one of the, the views to be respected. So, here's a strength and a weakness. Um, a strength on the bottom of page three is that the disciples did ask. When will the temple be destroyed? That was, remember, that was one of their questions. And Jesus didn't pause to distinguish between the two. And so it makes a lot of sense that Jesus would answer that part of the question as well. Okay? That's, that's a strength of the view. Um, and there are other strengths as well. There's a lot of good reasons to, to have that partial preterist. Um, I'll, I'll go to the weaknesses now for sake of time. Um, some of the prophecies of, I'll start with Matthew 24, were, were obviously not fulfilled in, in the events of 70 AD. Obviously, the second coming was not fulfilled, but I would say even more than that, even before we get to the second coming in Matthew 24, Jesus says some, some pretty um, uh, uh, widespread uh, global prophecy such as, every single nation will hate you because of me. And I think if we take those words at face value, that that was not also fulfilled in 70 AD either. Jesus also said that it will be a time of suffering like has never happened and never will happen. You know, he uses the superlative, the the greatest amount of suffering in all of human history or ever will be. And and that would be a stretch to say that that was 70 AD. Um, Most sane people would say that in the 20th century, much more suffering happened than in the first century, you know, between two world wars, genocide, genocides, blah, blah, blah. So that's a weakness of the view. Um, the, the weakness of seeing Revelation fulfilled in the first century is that most scholars believe that Revelation was written after 70 AD. And so it, it would be, uh, and the really diehard Preterist guys will make a case for why it was written before 70 AD. But again, it's reaching. It doesn't really fit with all of the evidence. Um, and I'll leave it at that, just to, just to move on. Okay, so the historicist view. This is, uh, and I should say the, the the partial preterist view is is very popular, especially with academics. The historicist view is not very popular today, so I'll spend even less time on this. the The historicist view is that in prophetic scriptures, we'll just stick with Revelation this time, that there was an ungrat there there's a, a a gradual fulfillment throughout the centuries, okay? So an example would be that, uh, you know, the first seal judgment in the book of Revelation was fulfilled in, say, I don't know, 130, I'm just making up stuff, 130 AD when such and such catastrophe happened. Then the second seal was fulfilled in 150 AD and that, that Revelation actually predicts the whole church age, you know, if you could match it up with the right events, Okay. Um, the strength of this is that God is certainly sovereign and inspires prophetic scriptures. He certainly could have done that. And, um, when you read some of the historicist views, there are some remarkable parallels. As as you look at the, you know, the seal, the trumpets, blah, blah, blah. And you look at different events in history, you go, whoa, that's, that's amazing. You know, that famine really could have matched with the, the, the third seal, blah, blah, blah. Now, here's the weakness. The, the weaknesses are, are rather big, which are why there, there are not very many historicists today, is that basically none of the historicists agree with one another. So, so almost every historicist <clears throat> from church history had a different view of what event fulfilled what part of the book of Revelation. And so that, uh, that cuts down on your credibility when none of your own guys agree with one another. Um, and then the, you know, the other weakness is that almost every single historicist saw the, these, these events as reaching their climax in their own day or immediately after their own day. And so, of course, they they all disagreed with with each other as well. And so that led to some date setting, which date setting has always been a disaster. You know, if I didn't make that clear this morning, date setting is not good when you're talking about the second coming. It always goes bad. Even the ones who are smart enough to set a date after their death, it, it still went bad for their followers and for the people who looked up to them. Okay, the next view is the... <clears throat> the idealist or spiritual view and this is another this is this is popular today the, the, this would be the view that somebody like Tim Mackey probably would would have you know of, of the Bible Project which I which I love I, I love his stuff um, The the idealist or spiritual view is that there are no specific fulfillments of prophetic scriptures that that all of it is a uh, uh, is symbolic and a dramatic depiction of deeper spiritual realities. So to say it differently there 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 are no seven seals, not in the first century, not not throughout history, not in the end times. The seven seals are just representative of the spiritual battle that that's always going on in every generation. It's representative of God being a judge. Um, and so we can we can garner these deeper truths th- as we use the idealist view, but there are no specific fulfillments. Um, <clears throat> strength is that there certainly are symbolic truths in the book of Revelation. Revelation is, is what we call apocalyptic literature, which is full of, of symbols that need to be interpreted with care. Um, and there are also allegory throughout Scripture in, in, in different ways. Uh, it, what, what, another strength of this view is that they, they really work hard to make the, the prophetic scriptures relevant to every generation. And, and I think they should be. They, you know, it shouldn't just be relevant to the first century you know, for preterists. And it shouldn't just be relevant to the end times either. That every generation of Christians should be able to glean something that's very relevant from the book of Revelation. And so idealists work really hard to see that happen, and I I respect that. Um, The weakness, there's a few, but I'll just leave it at this, is that the Old Testament prophecies about the first coming of Jesus. Now, that that should be a model in some ways in how we interpret end-time prophecies, right? Prophecies about the the second coming of Jesus. How were the prophecies about Jesus' first coming fulfilled? Were they, were they only symbolic realities or did they have a literal historical fulfillment? And the reality is that they had literal historical fulfillments. Uh, I mean, you, you'll be really familiar with the examples. Um, Zechariah 9 said that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, an idealist would read that and they would say, I wonder what a donkey symbolizes. The humility of the Messiah. Wow. And, and, it, and it did. It, it did in a sense... But it also actually happened in time and space and history, okay? Um, and I could I could list several other prophecies of, of the first coming that you guys are well aware of. Um, and so that's a weakness is that they that they only see the, the prophetic scriptures allegorically and symbolically. Okay, finally, the the futurist view. It's probably the most common, you know, when we think of the end times in Revelation. This is, this is where we naturally go to, and, and this is the most popular view. Um, the world over, actually, not just in the Western world, but in uh, third world, whatever. The futurist view is that the prophetic scriptures, book of Revelation, Matthew 24, have a primary fulfillment at the end of the age, leading to the actual appearing of Jesus in the sky leading unto his, his rule and reign on the earth. Um, now, some people would have uh, a fifth. They call it an eclectic. I don't actually have this in the notes if you want to add it on or whatever. Um, an eclectic view just means that you take a little bit of each. And uh, I'm, I'm actually a fan of the eclectic view because, uh, you know, as, as you'll see in my notes, I do think there is a strength in each one of these four views. Um, but I guess, you know, if, if you believe that the, the prophetic scriptures are, are, have a historical and literal fulfillment at the end of the age, which I do, okay, that's my view, I'm, I'm, I'm a futurist, uh, then people will label you a futurist. I mean, you can call yourself an eclectic all you want, you know, because I, I see this happen in some of the Revelation commentaries they go. Because it's, it's more cool to be an eclectic, you know. It's like, yeah, like, I'm more late, you know, like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, but at the end of the day, if, if you believe that the book of Revelation is going to happen in the end times, everyone else is like, oh, yeah, you're a futurist. Yeah. Yeah, Tom? So, so, yeah, yeah. So, same as the partial preterist, um, he will think that you know, uh, the seal trumpets, the the seal judgments, the trumpets, the the harlot bat, you know, all these different parts of the Book of Revelation are are, are picturing symbolic truths. But <clears throat> one of the deeper truths that they symbolize is the actual second coming of Jesus that will happen literally in the future. Okay, does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So every, all four of these still believe. That's what. That's what keeps us in orthodoxy. Okay. That. That's our unity as believers across the board. Is that. That's why I started with that this morning. You know that Acts one eleven. <clears throat> this same Jesus will come back. Um, that he will come back bodily. You know the actual physical person of Jesus. Uh, literally. In the sky, with the clouds, that's what we all agree on as believers. So the idealists believe that as well. It's just the events that precede that. Uh, you know, the idealists would be like, ah, oh, you're, getting, you're getting too crazy thinking there's like an actual Antichrist coming or an actual great tribulation, uh, an actual great falling away. Um, you know, they would see that as like you're stretching it. Makes sense. Um so that that's it with those those four views um now even quicker, here are any other questions? Oh wow, okay um, so seems so like I remember like some of the prophecies referring to Jesus first coming um, were some of those were also fulfilled partially in the time they were given, but then also it had a later reference referring to Jesus Messiah. Yep. Um, how would that fit with the views of the second coming, where there was a maybe a film it in seventy eighty or something like that, but also it's referring to later. Yeah, I yeah I love that. That is so true. That, and this is one thing that makes prophetic scriptures legitimately confusing is that if you go back and look at Isaiah 9, for example, um, you know, uh, a child is born unto us, you know, the famous Christmas passage. Uh, It's this clear prophecy of the the birth of the Messiah. Uh, If you look at the verse right after that, um, it it says, you know, his name will be uh, Wonderful Counselor, uh, Eternal Father, all the names. And it says of the increase of his government – There will be no end and that uh, warrior boots will be exchanged for, uh, you know, it it uses this like basically the ending of all wars will happen. And you put those two verses together and any sensible Jew reading that would would have said, okay, when the Messiah comes, he will establish his rule and reign and all wars will cease. And, and what you're pointing to is that it, it didn't exactly happen that way. That and, and remember that goes back to the, the the question of the disciples in the book of Acts, where they said, "Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time?" I mean, it's a very reasonable question. And Jesus said, "No, actually, there's this like big interim period of about two thousand years." You know, like wait, what? Between those two verses in, in Isaiah nine, there's two thousand years. You know, um, and so yeah, I, I so. I, and that's why I think the eclectic approach covers that because you can see Matthew 24 is having an initial fulfillment in 70 AD. And then you can also see Matthew 24 is having uh, an end time fulfillment as well. And I think that honestly is a responsible way to read Matthew 24. So I, so yeah, I think that's a great model. Um, Again, not so much the book of Revelation, because that, that was written after 70 AD. Um, but yeah, it's it's the idea of dual fulfillment. There are scriptures throughout, there are prophetic scriptures throughout the Bible that have their fulfillment in more than one time in history. And that seems weird to us, you know, as, as Western uh, Greek linear thinkers, it should only have one fulfillment. But, but, you know, maybe you've heard the analogy before of the, the mountains in the distance when it comes to prophecy. Uh, when you... When you look at the mountains in the distance, you might not realize that between this mountain and that mountain, there's actually miles and miles in between them because of our perspective so far off, right? We just see a mountain range, and it all seems to be happening at the same same place, the same length away. But as we get closer, we go, oh, this mountain range is separated from another mountain range by actually this huge meadow and miles and miles. That's how the prophetic scriptures are. From our vantage point, we go, whoa, they're way far off. They do have a future, literal fulfillment, but there could be these interim periods that we're, we weren't aware of. That's great. Any other questions? Yeah, Tim. Tim. Yeah. It seems kind of like a out, if that makes sense. Like, like, is there a strength in their view? Yes. Yeah, I want to, and I want to represent them well. I mean, that's, a, uh, you know, as a teacher, I, that's the responsible way to do this kind of teaching. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just don't want to throw darts at other people's, you know, set up straw men and knock yeah. them over and feel cool about myself. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think somebody like Tim Mackey or a lot of idealists, um, you know, he recommended a book called uh, "Reading Revelation Responsibly," and I and I read through it this last year. And it's kind of the same idealist approach. It you know, a lot of times it's not so much that they don't think there could be a future literal fulfillment. I think they leave that option open. I think really, though, in practice, they they don't want to get into the weeds of it because they don't think there that there's enough information to predict it rightly. And so it's not really worth talking about. Right. I think that's what, I don't know if they would say it that way. <laughs> Again, that's my explaining of it. Um, but that's the feeling I get is like, Hey, there's all, you know, and, and to me, I, I think it's a little bit reactionary. It's like, look at how many people. Yeah. yeah. What's that? Yes. Yeah. There, you know, there's so many people, uh, uh, the first guy, you know, it's the the guy number one, the weird guy. You know, the guy who who makes the end time predictions, and is obsessed with the uh, Antichrist and all these things, and uh, it's just so off putting. And um, I think it's a little bit of a reaction to that. So, uh, okay, so real quickly, and this is why it's good to have the the notes. Um, <clears throat> four views on the the millennium. Okay, what's the millennium? Okay, so the millennium is the idea. Uh, it's actually in numerous scriptures in the Bible, but it's the idea that when Christ returns, and I'm I'm explaining it from a premillennial viewpoint. And uh, but it's the idea that when Christ returns, He's going to rule and reign on the earth uh, for a thousand years in a in a very surprisingly natural kind of way before the eternal age. Okay, so Jesus comes back. Rules and reigns on the earth a thousand years, and then uh, the eternal age happens after that. So that it's this a thousand year period, but there are different ways of viewing this a thousand years. Um, the book of Revelation is the only part of the Bible that says a thousand years, uh, but there are lots of Old Testament prophets that talk about a time when the Messiah would be ruling and reigning on the earth. So here are the views. Uh, the the you know what. Let me start with the premillennial, because I just sort of, even though it's out of order, I think that'd be easier. Um, oh, jeez. No, it's not going to be easier. <laughs> it's, rewind. Okay, go back to page six. Okay. Uh, again, quickly. Okay, so the the post-millennial view, all right, so... I know these names are confusing. That's part of where it just takes time to sort through these things. Um, Post meaning that these little uh, prefixes, they attach to when Jesus comes in relation to the millennium, okay? So a post-millennial approach means that we believe Jesus comes back after the millennium, okay? Very different from what I just said, okay? The post-millennial view is that uh, now in this church age, the church is going to steadily grow in victory. Uh, that we are spiritually in the millennium right now. Okay, that that the millennium is not necessarily a thousand literal years. That's just a symbolic time frame. So it could be two thousand years, three thousand years, whatever. Uh, but we are in the millennium right now because Jesus is ruling in heaven, and we are His co-heirs on the earth right now and that it's a very optimistic view of of the church age, is that we are going to eventually Christianize the entire earth. The gospel is going to go to every last people group, and then eventually every government will be uh, infiltrated by believers. And then once we have Christianized the entire earth, then Jesus will come back literally and physically in the air and then bring in the eternal age. Okay? Uh, And I, I give some examples to me, it's helpful to have some, I'm not going to go through the strengths and weaknesses. We don't have time, but I do like the examples. They give you a handle, I think. So an example of who believes this would be a lot of charismatic um, ministries. Like I, I list Bethel Redding. They don't, they don't use end time terminology, but, but this is what they preach. They, they preach, uh, sometimes in charismatic circles, this is called the seven mountain mandate. You know, we're going we're gonna to take over the seven different mountains in culture. Um, or the dominion mandate, that's, that's s- said more negatively. Because um, people go, oh, you dominionists, you know, you think you're going to take over the earth. Um, <clears throat> but it's a very positive view of, of the church age that, that we're going to make this thing. Um, and then another uh, example would be actually a lot of Calvinists are starting to be post-millennialists. Uh, Interestingly, like, uh, you know, Doug Wilson, Jeff Durbin, whatever, if you know those names. Okay, next view, um, the all-millennial view is similar in that we are also in the millennium right now. Okay, it's, again, it's a symbolic time period for the all-millennialist as well. We are ruling and reigning with Christ, Um, but unlike the post-millennial view, who, who believe that we're going to, you know, Christianize the entire earth. They believe that this millennium is uh, just going to lead up to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, and, and, and they leave open to the, the reality that there might be a great tribulation at the end of it. Um, they, so, so they are more open to a lot of the classic end time details like Antichrist, great tribulation, great falling away. Um, but the characteristic of the amillennialists is that they believe we're ruling and reigning with Christ right now. So, a modern day example of, of this that I respect would be Sam Storms. Uh, he's a reformed amillennialist. And also, probably Tim Mackey would be an amillennialist as well. You can, yeah, you want to ask him? What, what would the, uh, what was the first one? Oh, Three? What would they believe about high like, tribulation and everything? So, they believe we are, we are in the millennium. And we are also in the Great Tribulation. Right now. Yeah, right now. Yeah so, yeah, so the entire church age is both the Great Tribulation and the Millennium with Christ. Mm-hmm. So they think Jesus won't return until everyone's heard the gospel? Or? That's a good question for an all-millennialist. I, I you know, never hear... If you're saying oh, the oh. because I never think Christian mm-hmm. once it's finished, once it, once, uh, yeah, that's interesting nuance. Like does everyone then have to be a Christian on the entire earth? From what I understand, um, the, the governments of every nation have to become Christianized. So not necessarily every last person becomes a Christian. But that every nation on earth has been inf- infiltrated to the point that every president, every king, every whatever is now a lover of Jesus. So, so, and that's why it's it's I a post. So much so many things to <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> cool, <laughs> great. Okay, <clears throat> the last two are uh, there are two different forms of pre-millennialism. Okay, so pre, you know, the prefix pre that means that it's what I started off with. Jesus comes back, and then he establishes a 1,000 years. And for a premillennialist, it's usually a literal 1,000 years, okay? Unlike the the other two who treat that as symbolic, it's usually literal. There are some variants, but usually literal. But there are two different forms of premillennialism. The first one is dispensational and... The easiest way to put handles on understanding that is it's the, the left-behind theology, just to keep using that because it's just so familiar to us. Uh, <clears throat> but the bigger picture is that dispensationalism, it divides up all of redemptive history into seven dispensations, okay? Uh, I see that as a weakness because I, I think they divide up history set in seven different categories in a way that the Bible doesn't. Um, the other big weakness of dispensationalism is that it was unknown until the, until the 19th century, started by an, a man named John Darby of the Plymouth Brethren. And, and, and that's where we first got the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, you know, like a secret rapture that occurs before the tribulation, all right? The final one is where I find myself, and really what um, got me excited about all of this is historical pre-millennial, pre-millennialism, this is the, the view of the early church fathers. So the, the direct disciples of the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, the, the patristic fathers you know, of the first and second century, they were historical premillennialists, meaning they, they believed that Jesus would come back and that he would literally rule on the, on the earth for a thousand years, uh, that he would restore the kingdom to Israel and that Jesus would lead the way in Christianizing the entire earth. That's really what the millennium is all about. Um, and I think it, it provides a really helpful uh, Jewish way of interpreting Old Testament passages that talk about the kingdom to come. You know, Isaiah 2 would be one where it talks about the, the Messiah uh, ruling from Jerusalem and the nation's gathering to him to listen to him speak and teach. Uh, you know, that, that did not happen when Jesus came the first time. Uh, that's not happening now. It, it only makes sense that there's a future time when Jesus will be in Jerusalem and the nations will be gathering to him. Um, so historical premillennialism doesn't have the dispensational part. It doesn't divide history up into seven categories and there is no secret rapture. Okay, there's a, a a great tribulation, the church endures through it, and then Jesus comes at the end of it. Now, some some people criticize this view by saying that it's negative, okay? Because you know the post post-millennial, the postmillennialists they're they're looking forward to taking over the earth and victory. Um, all millennialists don't really have to worry about anything because everything's symbolic. Uh, dispensational they get raptured up, so, you know. So all of them have kind of this positive take. But historical premillennialism, like, well, we're just here, and there's going to be a great tribulation. So that's been a criticism. Um, what what I my counter to that <clears throat> is that there are so many prophecies about the the victory of the end time church, promises of the light and the glory and the holiness that the end time church will walk in, and so this this is not a defeatist view. This is not a view that we're going to just, if we can just barely make it through the great tribulation, you know, then Jesus will come and rescue us at the end and it's all going to be fine. Uh, Jesus in John 17 prayed for the unity of the church and we are promised to experience that before his return. So there there is a day coming before the return of Jesus where the entire global church of Jesus Christ will be in one accord the way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are of one accord. Um, Ephesians 4 says that the five gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, and pastor, were given until the full unity of the saints. And it was given until the full maturity of the saints on earth, which th- that's, that's an implicit promise that before Jesus returns, we're going to walk in unity and maturity. So uh, you could call this a historical premillennialism with a victorious church. Just to add that on, just to remind us that, you know, that, that we are not the defeated and depressed uh, servant girl just trying to make it until the end, that we are the victorious end-time bride making it through. That, I think that's the proper biblical way. Uh, and actually, I heard it in Tom's, uh, Tom's message last week. The light, the light getting lighter and the dark getting darker is a great way to summarize this approach where the the move of God, Um, we're expecting a global revival before this thing is done. Jesus promised that every last people group would hear the gospel. And with that, we are expecting the fullness of the Gentiles, uh, worldwide revival, signs and wonders like we saw in the book of Acts, but on a global scale, Um, and a church that's walking in victory at the same time as the, the darkest darkness, you know, the greatest amount of suffering. So, sounds dramatic, right? Sounds epic, right? Well, this is the story that I think God, I think he's the master story writer. And uh, if this makes you sobered in your flesh, but excited in your spirit, I think that's how we're supposed to feel. I think we're supposed to feel like kind of alarmed, like, oh, wait, it's not going to be comfortable all the time. Well, yeah, like it usually hasn't been for the Christian church, you know, for the last 2000 years, there's going to be global persecution, but it's also going to be Exciting that God's going to reveal himself in, in, a, in a way that's unparalleled, I think, to any other time in, in human history. He really is saving the best wine for last, I believe. Can I ask a question? So, how would you define the difference between that thousand years when uh, Jesus is reigning and ruling? Is that right? And then, and then the eternal age. What's the difference between those two? So, the... Um, maybe we should do the next session where I'm going to, like, talk about the different parts. And then at the end of that, I think you could, if I don't answer that, then ask it again. Because I'll, I'll, like, take a brief look at each section, you know, of kind of the storyline. So, yeah. It's kind of, like, a question, just, like, asking that a little bit of a different way. And also just, like, talk about, like, this is, I, I'm a question like, this is very... Uh, New to like dive into this, like, yeah, bring something like, I've never really heard, yeah, honestly. Um, I'm really glad that you're doing this. Thank you. Um, how does Jesus coming back to rule have, like, at, if we're talking premillennial, what is Satan doing in that time? Where is he in the equation? If Jesus is ruling, then is Satan just off the court entirely, or, or is that like a battle for the next thousand years? We already know Jesus is gonna win, like. How is that involved? We're going we're gonna to look at that too. So yeah, Revelation 20 specifically answers your question, and we'll look at Revelation 20. Can I just, sorry, just so, just so I get clear. We're also going to answer that now, I'm just checking <laughs> that, that one, the one that you believe. So, so Jesus comes back after the tribulation, mm-hmm. or? Yes. Okay, so the tribulation, the dark getting darker, the light getting lighter. That's before Jesus mm-hmm. comes. So that means when Jesus is here, you said in this view, he's helping to Christianize for a thousand years. For a thousand years. Right. So it's not that when he comes, everything's perfect, like with the other view, the post-millennial. Right. The pre-millennial, we've had some of the light getting lighter, mm-hmm. also the dark getting dark. So he comes back sort of in the, in the midst of At the end of the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation. Right. At the end of the tribulation. So when he's here for that thousand years, things are better. To put it mildly. Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah, To put it super mildly, I I think that's another one we'll again ask it again at the end of this next session. We'll talk. We'll talk about the millennium more. because that it's a, a nuanced, fascinating topic, but we'll look at Revelation twenty, which is the basis for a lot of premillennial views. Cause cause a premillennial, this is I think another strength of the premillennial view, um, is that it takes Revelation twenty quite straightforwardly. Um and, and as we read through it, I'll make sure we get time to read since most of the questions are about the millennium. Um I'll I'll go through the other stuff pretty fast. Uh I think that the the proper way to read the Book of Revelation is if it's not clearly a symbol or an allegory, then to take it straightforwardly. It's called rational literalism, okay? Uh, or or a common sense literal approach, okay? Um, I think the idealist view over symbolizes the Book of Revelation, and I think there's a balance. Uh, I think that the 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 uh, I think that. <clears throat> The, the Jews had it right. I, I think that a, a lot of our all-millennialist, over-symbolizing approaches actually come from Greek influence throughout church history. Uh, you know, church fathers like Origen <clears throat> began to allegorize everything from Genesis to Revelation, and just, it just got absurd. And I think we still have some influence in, in the Western world where we're we're tempted to do that. Oh, sure. Yeah, okay, and then we'll take our, our break. Um, so this is in my, my notes. In a, and the reason why I only have one set of notes arguing against dispensationalism, and I don't have a set, a, a set of notes for every belief system that I don't agree with, is because dis, the dispensational approach is the most popular American belief system. Um, and it's in everyone's popular imagination because of the Left Behind books, uh, Late Great Planet Earth, if you're older, Um, you know, I think it just, a new Antichrist movie just came out this year. Did anybody see it? (laughs) I just saw the preview, but it's like based on the left behind books, you know, just another one came out. It's so ingrained in us, um, and I think it, I think it is just disastrous. I think that the the way, once you get into it, and you see the way that they interpret different scriptures, um, I think it's just, I think it's the most disastrous maybe of all the different Legitimate approaches, and so that's why I feel the most freedom to to kind of smack that one around. Um, so what what Jess, my my wife, is talking about. This is my wife, everyone, by the way, if you didn't know that. Jess um, is that in the 20th century, a lot of American missionaries went to China and were spreading the, the dispensational end time approach. That and they would tell the Chinese Christians mid 20th century, they said don't worry, before the big trouble comes, you'll be raptured out. And that was part of the, the gospel message that they were spreading. Um, what ended up happening is that the Chinese church experienced their big trouble long before the last big trouble, I mean, called uh, communist persecution. And they were left tragically unprepared because of a secret rapture belief system. And they were left bitter at the American missionaries who told them about a secret rapture. And so what happened later on when the um, iron curtain lifted decades later is a lady named Corrie Timboom, Boom, um, amazing uh, Dutch woman who housed Jews during World War II. Uh, she was released from a concentration camp and went off to have an itinerant ministry for the rest of her life. When she ended up visiting the, the Chinese church, they specifically told her, they said, as you continue to travel around the world, can you tell the American missionaries to stop teaching the secret rapture because it left us tragically unprepared for persecution? And, and I know that's not a scriptural basis to not believe it, um, but it's a pretty powerful, just experiential argument that this is a belief system that I think is really hurting people that are, are suffering and leading people to believe that somehow suffering is not part of God's plan.